cuss like a sailor. We're out singing hymns in the streets. Things had changed. Things had seriously changed. The whole dynamic of the city has changed. How can we do so much good? We can do all this work for the school. We can do all this work for our city. We can feed and, and gather food and help people through different ministries, but we're not anywhere closer to seeing any real change in our city. How is that possible? Can I tell you, we can keep moving forward and never really advancing. You know, I, it's just a circle, constant circle. And, and what bothers me, I think, more than anything, and I think what you're going to find when I begin to actually get to my notes this morning, is there's this growing frustration in me that nobody wants to try. Nobody, nobody wants to actually try to do something different. They're all scared. Because here's the truth of trying. Right? If we try something different, nobody might come. If we try something different, wait a minute, success looks like a growing church and everybody will think I'm a failure. If we try something different, what if we fail? What if we fail? What if it's completely wrong? Can I tell you, I've already been resolute with myself. If I fail trying, then I, that's okay. At least I try. It took a lot of courage to try. Most won't. Most will start a church and it will look like every other church under the sun, which there's nothing wrong with some of that. But let me tell you something. The world doesn't need a, just another church. The world needs Jesus and the church that reflects the image of Jesus Christ, right? And I don't think it's going to be as flashy as you think. And the sad part is, is, is like as much as I, I, I love technology, I, I'm guilty of having the iPad, the iPhone, and the Mac. I live on Apple. I've apparently sold my soul to the Apple devil, and uh, he lives in my home willingly. And, and I'm just as bad of loving technology as anybody else. But and I, this is not an anti-technology rant at all right now. But what it is is this idea that we can keep advancing or we can keep moving forward and never advancing. Because I truly believe the only way to go forward is to go back. We've got to return to God, to our friendship with him, to rekindle this life uh, uh, of what life and time seem to snuff out at times, right? Isaiah 44, 22 says, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins, like the morning mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God so loves us, so absolutely burdened for us and foolishly crazy for us, that he did whatever it took to capture and to captivate and to reveal and give insight into this great love that he has for us. It's his desperate plea for no more games, no more foolishness. Come to me and rejoin me in relationship. Genesis 3.8 records or remembers a God who is so close to his, his creation that, that he could be heard, according to Adam, walking in the garden on the cool of the day. Can I tell you something? That same God has been working and striving ever since to bring us back to the place where we walk together once again. Right now, we're like little kids. Dad, see what I can do. And dad's like, man, I'm ready to take you to work with me if you'll just come to work with me. It's not see what I can do, dad. It's let's work together. Let's be a father and son business. That's what he wants. He wants to walk with us again. How does love begin, though? Can we really put a finger on it? How is love sustained? Have we figured that one out? I think a lot of us will say work as if uh, we're confident of that answer. But to describe that work doesn't sound really all that romantic at all. But there is one great truth behind the idea or concept of marriage. John Popper once said this, A marriage throughout the years doesn't survive on romance alone, and neither does our relationship with God. Some days it's just about keeping your promise. Amen? <laughs> to you who are married, you know this is true. It's not always passionate, wildly romantic in, in, our, in our relationships. In those, but in between those moments, when those quiet times come, there are different attributes that come forth, different characters of our relationship, characteristics come forth, like faithfulness, like loyalty, like trust, things that we value. Now, sometimes those aren't the most highly romantic ideas, but we value them extremely. We learn what real friendship really is along the way, and all of which provides a healthy foundation for friendship and relationship. And God is beating the drum. Return to me, says the Lord. But we're scared. We know he's holy and he's righteous. We know that there can't be anything uh, impure or unclean before him. And lastly, as if we need any more walls or barriers between us, we know ourselves. Our self-loathing and low self-esteem 
are like a giant ball and chain shackles at our feet, keeping us from going anywhere with God. Amen. We feel unworthy to approach God, even though we know He's full of mercy and grace. Many of us have come to Him only to walk away again and right back into the very thing that He saved us from. So we go back to the whipping post of guilt and condemnations, and we beat ourselves up again in the hopes that Jesus will take us back. Surely if He sees how sorry I feel, surely if He sees how much I hate myself in this whole endeavor, He'll receive me back. But the actual truth is Jesus has already taken the beating for you. You simply need to return and you will find him running towards you with open arms. This is the gospel. Much like the prodigal son's story, you can go ahead and practice that apology all day long. But don't be surprised if you're not able to get a word in edgewise because he's too busy holding you and hugging you simply because you've returned. Go back and look. He doesn't even get to say sorry. That big speech of I'll just be a slave is wasted. As soon as he sees him return, he runs to him and embraces him. Because God is a fool in love. I mean, he's a fool. He's smitten by you. And the heart that returns to him will be met with a running embrace, welcome, and celebration. That's the gospel. This is the gospel we're talking about. And the whole time we're like, but why, God? Why does he keep doing this? It makes no sense. God says through the prophet Jeremiah in 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's why. We say, but I'm a broken mess. I've made terrible decisions in my life. And if there ever was a fire in me, it's not in there now. But Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Can I tell you, church, my bones rattle with this like one message from God. And if I could sum it up, it would be return to me, my beloved, my child, my little ones. I've called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you a light to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from their prisons, and to release from the dungeon those that sit in the darkness. Maybe the reason we have a hard time accomplishing those things is because we're failing just to return to God. Can I tell you, I have met a lot of wonderful, good people in my life, all right? Good people that do great things for people that, that, that are giving and that are, that are uh, wonderfully honest and don't know Jesus Christ. Anybody can do the works of Christ, even the heathen. What makes us different is our hope, our belief in the love he has for us. And not just that, that we love back because that is relationship. Let go of all those feelings that betray you. Because here's the thing, all isn't lost. This world's not gone. I don't care what Facebook says, and I don't care what your news feed might say. Can I tell you, this whole world is not lost. It's only begun. And here's the thing, God's saying, return now. Allow God to surprise you. I promise you, you haven't got him figured out yet. His words are not like the words of men. His words are written in blood. He gave his only son to the torment of death and then resurrected him, not only to provide a way for us to be where he is, but to display before us his radical commitment to obtain us. That's how bad he wants us. For he prizes us above all else, even his own son. He isn't right now just sitting up there waiting to see if you're going to follow the rules, man, or just listen to him uh, when you need something. You know what he wants? He's waiting for you to treat him like you treat all those that you care about. Right? He just wants like that daily talk, like in the morning and the evenings with you. He's okay if you just want to talk about the weather. Can we just hang out? Can we just talk for a few seconds? Can we just continue to get to know each other? You know, one of the things I do in my uh, seventh grade class at Faith Academy is every Friday, uh, I'm sure they think it's like this big slough off day where we really don't do anything, but uh, we've had this big talk about how we, we study on Monday, we study on Wednesday, and then I have them on Friday. And for, on that Friday, we do a big Q&A kind of thing, and it's not like this big, all right, the professor sits up there, and he speaks on all this theology, and, and they ask questions about the Bible. No, it, uh, this last Friday, it was, uh, what's one of the funniest things that's ever happened to you? And so I went around the room and listened to seventh graders who have some amazing stories about things that have happened that's funny to them. It, uh, 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 also, I never realized how conniving seventh graders can be. Uh, uh, what they have talked their little brothers into and little sisters into are very funny. 
Can I tell you, there's more ministry on Friday than there is on Monday and Wednesday? You know, that's what God wants, right? Because that's when we get to know each other. That's when we get to be relational with each other. You know, we had another guy come in this last Wednesday and begin to speak for a few seconds, you know, just like a visitor kind of thing. And uh, the, the, it was neat how awkward the room got. Like, you can tell how comfortable they are with me. When somebody from the outside came in, it was like, oh, okay, we don't even know this guy. And I couldn't help but think that's probably how a lot of their teacher class is sometimes. Unless we take the time to get to know somebody, we're never comfortable with them. Maybe that's the why some of us aren't comfortable with God. So we've never really taken the time to get to know him. You know, I was overwhelmed. I read this last Wednesday, the passage before some of you here, about the whole idea that uh, on Good Friday, on Good Friday, are you thinking about you? you think how wonderful it is that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins? Or do you think about how heavy it must have been for God who had to take his only son and place him on the cross that day and then turn his face and let him die so he could complete the whole thing? Do we grieve for God at all on Good Friday? Like, totally challenged me, by the way. You know why I never grieve for God? Because I don't think about God. I think about me. I don't think about God like that, that he could grieve. But God does grieve. God does mourn. God does get his feelings hurt. And his feelings are righteous. They're not fickle like ours. We try to place that on God, but he's not like that. God is God. He's always wanted a relationship from the beginning. And I know this is so hard to grasp and to accept, and we don't understand it, and therefore we put all these limitations on God, and we make him in our image instead of us being made in his. That's what we do. Like if I hate myself, I assume God must hate me too. That's not true. Most often that's how we think, though. A perfect example of this passage is found in John chapter 8. Jesus is confronted by a group of men who's caught this woman in adultery. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 4 and just read to verse 11 real quick. John chapter 8, verse 4 through 11. It says, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. But Jesus went down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And the, women still standing, and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, declared Jesus. Go now. And leave your life of sin. Some translations say go and sin no more. Did you know that this particular passage was so scandalous in the early church that it was actually, uh, uh, they took it out of the scriptures and the text. And it actually took, it took till after John the apostle died before they would put this in. Did you even know that? Because they didn't like the language. They didn't like the language of this text. The early church, they were kind of moralist, and they had a much stricter view of good and evil, even more than Jesus did. Uh, and they actually thought this passage made Jesus look way too lenient. We don't like this. We don't like this kind of Jesus. And if we're being honest, come on, we agree. I mean, but there again, there we see the nature of us, and we see the nature of Jesus, and we see his love, and his love is kind of scandalous. <laughs> I mean, his love is, is kind of embarrassing. How do you think the church would deal with this woman today? I mean, I don't think we would throw rocks at her. But we would make absolutely sure that she presented before us some plea that her life's been turned around. We would want to hear that she's sorry. We would want to hear that it will never happen again and that she's on the right path now. Because if we let her off without even saying she's sorry, right, she'll probably go back into it. So we're going to want all this reassurance. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just loves her and pardons her at the same time. The incident alone is a tough reminder, a reminder that Jesus didn't cast stones at either party. After all, wasn't it really the church who dragged her up there? And, and, and this is, everybody's been here if you've been in church for any length of time. How many people have had their lives dragged about for the church for the sake of false and phony righteousness? Can I tell you, I, I've had this uh, a sermon about this uh, set of scriptures before. And in my, in my devotion time when this came up, when the first time I ever writ, wrote anything on this, uh, all I could picture is how bruised she must have been and scraped up she must have been as they drugged this woman through the streets, the church. I tell you what, I know too many poop, people 
that are bruised and broken because of the church. Too many. But Jesus neither corrects the mob nor does he verbally abuse the woman. No wonder they didn't like this passage. It makes Jesus to be a great fool. You just going to take her word for it? Mm-hmm. Just going to love her. He makes him look like he's smitten, like he's a fool in love, like he's romanced by their whole unknowing, you know, un- unknowing need of him. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, this month, as I've gone through my you know, journal and my devotional times in the morning, and I'm constantly exploring, God, how do you love me? Teach me, God, how do you love me? Lord, I want to love you. I want to love you. Because I truly believe we'll never have a revival until we first revival begins here. And I know we hear that a lot, but the truth of the matter is there's no revival movement without a Jesus movement. Because revival is really never talked about in the, in the Bible. It, it's really not. Revival is something to describe the Jesus movement that is happening. Grace and mercy is being found out. People who uh, discover their sins have been forgiven fall in love with the Savior who's done it, who's paid the price. And in their falling in love, they begin to tell others who have their lives changed and they begin to see their lives being changed. And it just begins and we describe that as revival. So this month has been a month of returning to our first love and Truth is, Jesus has never left his. Even after his departure, he left a promise to you that according to Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another translation repeats it like this. I like this even better. He says, I will never fail you, and I will never abandon you. Whether we come or go, the promise stands. God has never promised anything would be easy. Amen? However, listen, there is no growth in Christ without some difficulty and some fumbling in life. If we're going to keep on growing, it means we're going to have to risk more failure throughout our life. The Nobel Prize winner, Max Planck, was quoted as saying this, Men will always be making mistakes as long as they're striving for something. Welcome to the life, man. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes here at Mosaic. We're going to try to make the best decisions we can, but we're going to make mistakes. We are going to fail sometimes, but it's okay. Like John Maxwell would say, success stands upon a mountain of failure. The more times we fail, the more times we'll learn what not to do until we learn what's right. Amen? That's not convincing. What are you striving for? Are you, stri- are you striving for retirement, for financial peace? None of these things are going to help you bring the peace you're really looking for. But Christ is waiting, and he is patient. He will not raise his voice, and he's never going to raise his hand to you. Why? Because a bruised reed he will not break. God sees you broken. He's okay. He's, not, he's going to be gentle. He'll be patient. He'll wait for you. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. His words will be kind and gentle. His reassurance will usher in an ocean of peace in your life. And in the waves of our fickleness concerning his will and his direction and his guidance and all those other things that we struggle with, his will will speak peace. Be still until everything comes serene through the power of his voice. When you rely on his voice, his friendship, and listen, your sonship, it's only then that you will know the freedom that the Bible speaks of when it says, he who the son set free is free indeed. Most of us don't even live free. We don't know what that is because we don't understand his love. We keep trying to, to like, well, if I just do this and if I'll be this way and I'll do this, it's okay to struggle. It's not okay to hide it. When you hide it, that's when you're going to start falling in for this whole works-based thing where you're going to have to earn or deserve God's love. That's not how that works. God gives it freely. You are set free. You are free from sin, free from the law, free from guilt, and free from condemnation. So quit leaving in it. Listen, neither the church nor God Almighty shall cast a stone to those that lay at the feet of Christ. His love is a jealous love that protects the humble and low. And when you finally will understand this, then and only then will you be able to celebrate your life and live your life to the fullest. So many were scared. We're scared we're going to make a bad decision. We're scared we're going to fail. We're scared. Go ahead, fail. Can I tell you, I've had a lot of fun failing. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Made for some wonderful stories, though. Got to try it. Got to try it. Brennan Manning has written one of the best poems to describe this freedom presented to us by God through Jesus. I cried when I first read this. It was so good. He writes this. Lord, thank you for setting me free. Listen, when I'm about to read what I'm about to read, 
I pray this upon you. Thank you for setting me free. Free to blow bubbles. Fly kites. Listen to seashells. Cuddle kittens. Build castles in the sand. And wish on the stars. Lord, thank you for setting me free. Free to hunt for four-leaf clovers. Explore oak trees with inviting branches. Run laughing in the rain. Walk barefoot. Jump puddles. Wave at trains. Lord, thank you for setting me free. Free to yellow my nose in the buttercups. Catch a firefly to see his light. Pick the first wild strawberry. Count the stars. Talk to ladybugs. And chase a thistle. Lord, thank you for setting me free. Free to see you in the sunlight. Dancing on the water. Dogwood smiling at the sky. Willows curtsying to the river. Azaleas falling across the land. Rainbow cobwebs. And driving leaves, Lord, thank you for setting me free, free to play with, free to wonder at, and love all that you've given me, and free as well to give it back to you. Man, can you taste that? That's good stuff. That's good stuff. We forget, you know, God says, come to me like a child. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what that was like? Are you so sophisticated now and such a parent or such an older person that you can't get that anymore? That you can't appreciate what's beautiful around you? And that God, you got to know this, that God created the earth and he called it good, right? The earth is not out there to be your driven hell. There's a whole other place called hell. Sometimes this earth can feel like that. But there are a lot of wonderful things. Again, you're going to fumble. There's going to be failure. But that's called growing. And that's okay. That's a godsend for you, Right? Some of us, we can't even enjoy the things that are around us that are so beautiful and so wonderful because we're so caught up. And what God's saying is just come spend some time with me. Let me show you the appreciation of these things. Let me open your eyes to something new. And listen, it gets better. Galatians 5, 13 through 14 reads, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Right? He says, for the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This love and freedom that comes from the root of Christ is so powerful, it's so overwhelming, it's so constant that it can not only hold you and keep you in the freedom by which Christ desires that you enjoy, but it will overflow into the lives of others. Maybe the reason our witness for God is ineffective because few of us are really enjoying the freedom that Christ has purchased. We're driven by our jobs. We're driven by all these things around us. Sometimes we're driven by religion, trying to be so perfect, trying to keep our mouth just right, trying to keep everything. I'm so embarrassed every time I have to tell you about one of my failures. And they happen. But I'm so scared also to hide them. I am. But what it's allowed me to be is free. I don't have no closet. I just got a single room. That's it. It's all out there with glass windows. But it's good. God's given us this wonderful freedom. He's purchased it for us. And I know it's, it's listen, here's where other people struggle. They, they struggle to believe you about Christ when you look miserable. <laughs> God is so good. And then, like, there are six other days a week uh, when you're not at church, you look miserable. My life is so stressed out. I'm hating everything. It's the worst Monday ever. It is, I mean, and that's how we are. We're just like struggle. And then our face looks like, I mean, just, ugh. I read a story once where an atheist philosopher approached a group of Christians. And this guy goes up to him and goes, man, you all make me sick. And, and like the, basically the head guy of the little group says, like, why? And he said this, because you don't look redeemed. You're as fearful, guilt-ridden, anxious, confused, and adrift in an alien environment as I am. Here's the problem. I'm allowed. I don't believe. I have nothing to hope for. But you people claim you have a Savior. Why don't you look like you're saved? Amen. I'm telling you, I see so many people in the church defeated. I wonder if they're even on the right team. You must be on the wrong team, bro. Wrong church. That's another church. This is not a defeated church. Last I read, we win the thing. I mean, where else can you go see the future as it's written? I mean, we win. We should look like the winning team. I don't know about you, but I am highly competitive. Unless I just am really horrible at whatever it is and I try not to play it. 
but I am highly competitive. I want to win. And when I win, I want to like, I'm sorry, but I want to rub it in. And the Bible says we win. And so when I can rub it in, I try to rub it in. And I want to live like a winner because the Bible says I am. And listen, it's not because I'm so awesome. No, I've got a number one draft pick in Jesus Christ. That guy's awesome. Why don't we look like we're free, sanctified, and saved? I mean, do you really trust God? That's basically what we're saying. Do you really trust him, okay? Do you really believe God during the week when you're crying about your circumstances and everything? I mean, come on, don't you believe God, right? Why aren't you committed to him? Are you? You need to be asking yourself. And then you need to ask, once you've asked yourself, uh, uh, do you trust him? Do you believe him? Are you committed? Then you need to say, now face, get on board with it, right? It's time for somebody to tell your face that. It's time you start looking like you're saved. Nobody's going to come to a church where you look, I'm not going to that church five days of the week. They're miserable. That's not a good place. You know, here's what I do know, because I've talked with enough of you to know. I can tell real quick by hanging out with you what you love. No matter how bad it gets, the thing you love stays awesome because you love it. And even though... um, You might not be good at it all the time, or it might not go your way all the time, but because you love it, you will always talk passionately about it. Why isn't God that way? Why isn't God that way? You know, I never have to worry about preaching or telling somebody or witnessing somebody about the gospel. It's because that's what I love. So it just comes out. And it's not because they're like, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Do you know Jesus? It's not like that. It isn't. Most of the guys know it, and like, I let them be whoever they are. If they cuss, they cuss. Man, I, if somebody would have like made me quit cussing before I came into the church, it would have never happened. I'd have never be saved. You wouldn't see this guy standing at the platform or nothing. At some point, we have to accept people just like they are, just like God accepted you. You didn't get saved, and then you came in the church. No. You were loved into the church and accepted into the church. You know, I, I told somebody like a, a little secret the other day. It's not much of a secret. I'd probably say that louder. Uh, I was like, you know, six months out of the year, we teach grace. God loves you, accepts you just like we are. But we also know the Bible also teaches that you will do the fruits of grace and mercy. So there will be works that will come from the fruit of knowing Christ. So we do look at Christians and go, well, what's their fruit say? That's really hard for us to process because the truth, the reality is, is that only God judges the, really the fruit and, and only God can judge the heart. So we, that's why we can see people who perform wonderful fruit and they're like rotten to the core. They don't know Jesus at all. You can do the works of Christ without ever knowing Christ, right? They're created in his image whether they like that or not. We're all created from God. So I was telling him like, so six months out of the year we teach grace. Six months out of the year we teach you got to know somebody by their fruit. And about two weeks out of the year, we actually get it right. That's that two weeks out of the year, we all live great for God. Like in those two weeks that we can out of the year, it's like the balance right there in the middle where the pendulum swings one way for six months, pendulum swings the other way for six months. And then there's like a little span right there in the middle where we're just awesome. We've got it. We're full of grace. We're accepting people. We're working things out in our fruit. And it's just this wonderful time. And I said, but most... Most of the pull, right? When, when one side of the, 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 the thing pulls this way and the other side pulls this way, most of us hate the church in those moments. If it's too grace-giving, we're like, that's, that's false. You just can't keep on living that way, uh, woman of adultery. That's false. You can't, just because Jesus forgive you now, you have to turn around and listen, because all of us have said that. You better turn your whole life around. Right now, say you're sorry, repent, return to your ways. You can't keep living like this because we're not going to let you come in the church if you just keep living like this. Totally against what Jesus said, right? But that's how we are, right? Because then the pendulum swing back on the other side where we were about works and we were about, you know, we got to see the fruit of Jesus. We gotta... But about two weeks out of the year, we get it right. And I said, because this guy was telling me about how much he, like, he disliked church sometimes and all these things that he struggled with over the years. He grew up in church. His dad was a pastor, and he didn't go to church anymore. And so he was telling me all these stories. I was like, I know. Like, everything you said is real. And when people tell me, like, I hate the church. It's full of hypocrites. I always go, absolutely. Church is full of liars. Oh, my gosh. You have no idea. You want to know what else it's full of? I've heard some stories. And it's just true. You have to say that, right? The church is full of adulterers. True. The church is full of liars. Absolutely. Right? The church is full of all of them. Where else can they go? Who else offers grace to these kind of people? 
right? That's what I tell people all the time. Well, I don't go there. There's hypocrites there. Uh-huh. Who else is going to love them but Jesus? You don't. You don't love them at all. So they're not going to come to you for the wonderful friendship. They go to Jesus because Jesus goes, we're working on it. I love them. And we look at Jesus and go, you're dumb. Why are you loving on them? I love them. Because I do, because I created them, because I think they're wonderful, because I know that if we can get through this thing together, that if me plus them, they're going to be awesome. It's my relationship with my wife. That's what he says. Because I love her. That's God, right? That's how he is. And so I begin to tell this guy this, those two weeks out of the year, that's why I come to church every Sunday. Because when she's right, when the church is doing what she's supposed to be doing, when she's in Christ, right, and she's full of grace and the works of Christ just overflow, right, she's beautiful. Who, is, who can compare? What beauty of any other organization can compare to the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ? What can? What saves people like the church of Christ? What? No other God is like Jesus. No other God. They can make all their claims. They can say all they want. There's only one God. That's the unique, that's why I go, because I've seen her beauty, and, and because I long for revival, revival really for me is just nothing more than longing for that again, a prolonged moment where the world can see the splendor of the church of Jesus, right? Because I know what they'll see. They won't see us. They'll see him. That's why we got to fall in love with him. It can't be just this thing we redo. Jesus never wanted religion. That's you. There's no mention of religion in, in Genesis. There's no mention of these sacrifices and altar. None of that stuff happened in Adam. He walked with them. He had relationship with them. And God has been trying ever since to go back to that. Always. And we keep going, no, man, we're going to build a house now. We're going to name all the animals. Now we're going to start eating them. And now we're going to plant the land. And now, we, God, we just got too much to go on. And if you want to catch up and hang with us, you're more than welcome to. But we got stuff to do. And let me tell you something. The church is a lot like that still today. God, if you want to come bless our work and come bless the things that we're doing, we're doing things, all these is your name, so you might as well come on along and bless it. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's mighty nice of you. But is that really what he wants? I'm telling you, that's the confusing part, right? Because here's just as much as I'm telling you, if we'll, if we'll drive ourselves back to Jesus, the programs and all those things that everybody longs for when they look at a church, you have to worry about all that stuff. Because the one thing that will be fulfilling, programs never fulfill people. That's why they look to other churches and they go from church to church and they look all around for different churches. It's not programs that fulfill people. A relationship fulfills people. Why? Because it's the only thing that exists from the very beginning. In the very beginning, Genesis, Adam and Eve, they stand in relationship to God. And that's what it was meant to be. And God is striving to get that back. He had that in Christ. We see it in Christ. He walked with him. What did Jesus say? All that I saw my father doing what? I did. All that I saw, I did. All that I heard, I said. That's what we're called to return to. To the place where whatever God says is what we do. Whatever we see him doing, we do likewise. Right? I don't know how it got this far. Or why nobody wants to course correct. Maybe because it's so hard and we're such people who hate change. But it's time for course correction. I've had so many people ask me, when are you going to write a book on all this? But it's funny, it's like a lot of other pastors at other local churches here. It's weird. I think they like the idea, but I think that's what they're faced with. How do we change something that's been this way for so long? I'm not looking to change anything. I hope you know that. I feel like Martin Luther, going, when he wrote this thesis that became <laughs> Protestant and Catholic, he goes, the worst thing that ever happened for him in his ministry, he's quoted as saying he never wanted to start a Protestant religion. He, he just wanted to course correct the Catholic one. <laughs> He said, man, they were just on this, they were, had wrong doctrine, bad doctrine. I was just trying to correct what was already there. I never wanted to start something or split something. Well, I have no desire to take a church in some new direction. I'm not taking a church in any direction. That's why we don't say we're a new church. We're not a new church. We're going back. We're going back to Jesus, the simplicity of the gospel, where Christ loves people, where you're not going to be judged. And I'm going to tell you, I'm the king bouncer to that. If I hear somebody gossiping or judging, most of you in here already know me, you'll probably be asked to leave. There's a lot of other churches you can attend that'll probably be a whole lot more allowing for that, but can't have anything like that. It's not that I don't love them, and they're welcome here as long as they don't beat each other up. 
right? I don't let my kids beat each other up. I'm not going to let our church people beat each other up. That's just how it works. <laughs> That's called love, by the way. Accountability is called love. It's not an evil word. Uh, it's time to renew our vow before the Lord. It's time to return to Him. I'll leave you with this last scripture. Uh, Therefore, tell the people. This is like the, the thing that's driving me. Therefore, tell the people that this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zechariah 1.3. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. I, I could go on and on. There is a ton of scriptures where God is always saying, return to me, return to me, return. I mean, he beats it like a drum. So much so that by the time you see it to Jesus, even Jesus, his whole existence is to say, return to God. This is what it looks like when you return to God. If you'll walk with God, watch God, listen to God, talk to God, this is what it'll be. This is what life will be like. God says, return to me and I will return to you. This morning, I'm going to give us an opportunity just quietly uh, to have that moment to return to the Lord. A little bit of quiet prayer just for a few minutes and then... Uh, and then we're going to take communion. And it's important to have that time of quiet prayer right before communion because if, if, if things aren't right and you need to confess things before the Lord, then take these next few minutes to confess a few things before the Lord and make yourself right before Him. The great thing about God is you go, God, I'm sorry. And He's like, okay. Like, He's like that best friend you always wish you had, you know, like never gets His feelings hurt, never, like, that's how God seems to be, you know? Now, I think when our feelings are hurt about ourselves, again, we start transposing us onto Him. And so we think, oh, God's mad at me. No, you're mad at you. God loves you. Now, I think God sometimes goes, you're being silly, all right? I, I do think he's like that sometimes, but God loves us. And, and like I said from John chapter 8, I know we want more there. It's like we want God to say, well, surely there's more, God. No, I just need you to accept it. I just need you to accept it. Why? Well, it's weird. Don't you want something back from me? Uh, if you'll love me back, that'd be awesome, you know? I'm loving you first. If you'll love me back, that'll work. And then we'll love each other. And then as we love each other, and if you've been in a relationship any length of time, you know the longer that time goes, the more you become like your spouse. They say some of their studies that have shown, I've said it in here, that married couples that have been married, the longer they're married, the more they start having the same facial mannerisms. You tend to smile like your spouse, right? You tend to tell jokes like your spouse. You tend to talk like your spouse. You pick up little things here and there. And they showed pictures one time, right? And they start to look like each other. It gets weird, right? That's what God's hoping for, amen? That when one day we'll look back and after 20, 30, 40 years, man, other people will always see it. We will never notice that. We've been looking at the mirror for so long. We've been looking at our, at our friends for so long. We won't notice. But other people go, man, they look like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They have like this air about them that's just like Jesus, man. I mean, like when I, there's people in your life, you know, because you've met them, where you come across them and go, man, that's a holy person. I remember a lady when we first got to Marble Falls, her name was Belva. And Belva was a scary woman because it was like she was full of the Holy Spirit. And when she said something, you felt the weight of her words. And I remember uh, Joy, literally, like first weekend, right? Safe place. First weekend, uh, Joy's dancing. Uh, uh, while they're doing worship. And, uh, and I remember Belva comes up, and again, highly respected woman, been in church a long time, but just the language that she used. Bear with me. She's like, I don't care what the hell anybody says. <laughs> you just keep on dancing for the Lord. <laughs> I, I, at first, the common card as a pastor, not going to lie, using that word in that term was not talking about the place. <laughs> and, but it caught me off. But she was a holy woman furious, uh, righteous anger to be protective of those who found joy in the Lord. Can I tell you, that wasn't an unholy moment. And I don't believe that was sin. I believe that was a shepherd's heart. That's what I believe. Somebody who's maybe seen young people get hurt from others, criticisms and things like that, and who wanted to make sure that we knew that she was going to bear us up and armor bear for us and really be our shield if somebody said something. And it was like our first weekend there. I'll never forget it. Again, the language really made it sink into my, because <laughs> that's not too many times I hear as a pastor at church somebody say talk like that. But a wonderful moment in ministry where we see people who, over the years, they become like Christ, right? Shepherds after God's heart. Amen? Will you stand to your feet as we get ready for communion?
I have found myself doing a lot of crying when it comes to this month, having to tell God in the journal the different things I love about, about him, and I find myself very, myself very emotional and, and approaching him. And I think the hardest thing for a preacher is to try to somehow like convey my emotion into you or uh, it's because what happens in my devotions, they're so private and they're, and they're really are like, I'm an emotional guy. I tend to be driven a lot by emotion. And, and uh, so when I come and I bring things like this, especially about love, I'm, I'm going to be honest, like in the years past, um, this is really new ground for me in the years past. I've been very much more like the prophet where I've come in and I've had to really do a lot of correction, a lot of accountability and things like that. And then to come in and all of a sudden have this like really new chapter in my life where I'm just focusing on how wonderful he is. <laughs> and uh, I, I've never, um, like, like that poem, I'm enjoying the freedom. <laughs> I'm enjoying the freedom that God's love has purchased, right? Makes me appreciate, I took my daughter hunting a, a, a week or so ago and Maybe just appreciate being with my daughter. Maybe just appreciate seeing animals in the wild and just enjoying life, not being miserable about it, not, not worrying about, uh, my wife will tell you this, I'm the king of not worrying about finances. I don't worry about it. I don't worry about this. I don't worry about what I drive. I don't worry about too much. And it's not to say that they're not things that are worthy of being worried about. It's just I've come to the place where, Lord, this is about the adventure. And what I've learned in my life, especially hanging out with many of you, I love hearing your stories of like, man, I remember this in our life. This is very difficult. And we did all this. And, I, and I'll hear some of these craziest stories. And I think, wow, what an adventure life was for them. And then I think about all, most of, isn't it funny how most of your greatest disasters are your funniest stories? So I always think back like, this is just going to be a good story one day. And I'm going to be able to tell the story to the kids and it's going to, everybody's going to laugh and that, you know, the crazy things that happen to us in life, and we can appreciate it because it's been purchased, right? You can, you can appreciate life. It's okay. You can live for more than just Sunday, right? You can know God on Monday and Tuesday. You can look like you're saved. It'd do, it'd do everybody else a favor, right? The whole world needs to see you happy, right? And not fake it. They see that all the time. You know, do you know that kids can know when you're fake with them? You, this one, the best thing ever happened to me is learning uh, youth ministry, because youth ministry taught that you better be real because kids spot fakers. They do. And in leadership, we have a bad habit of saying, well, fake it till you make it. No, uh if, if you're struggling, best thing you do for your kids is show, your, show them your struggles and be honest with them. It's true. It's like, yeah, I struggled here, man. I, I shouldn't have done this. I've had to apologize to my kids more times than I care to admit, but at least they'll see I'm not scared to. I'm not scared to apologize. I'm not scared to admit that I'm wrong. Not say it didn't feel good. Doesn't always feel good but I'm, I'm not afraid to admit it. And I live in freedom because of it. And I can appreciate my kids more because of it. Because I go, wow, man, my kids are way so much loving kids. They're such forgiving kids. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I pray that on you. Let's, let's uh, take communion. We'll start with the bread. Uh, let me pray. Father, This isn't, we, don't, we don't do this to just honor a, a tradition, God. We do this, God, because we remember that you sat amongst your friends, knowing what laid ahead. And, Father, you gave them bread and you gave them the wine, God, and they sat about as your friends, Father. And you knew, Lord, it was an intimate moment between you and them, Father. You handed it out. said remember your brokenness is found in the bread God your brokenness for sin for sinners your body broken God bruised the things that you would endure despite all this God you still moved forward and you did whatever it took Lord, right now, we thank you for your body, for your brokenness, God, and we take of the bread.
Lord, we lift up the cup now, Father. And we see the Roman soldier, God. As he pierces your side. And Lord, the blood that would save mankind is poured out. Would even cause the Roman soldier to believe. Lord, the murderer who hung next to you, God, believed. And Father, we're still believing. And we too remember, God, what has been poured out for us and given for us, God. The offering before the Lord. And we thank you. We'll take the cup. Lord, I thank you for these people today. And Father, I pray this morning Lord, that their hearts would be filled with your love. Lord, I pray this morning that they would just they would know you. And Lord, not like they know just uh, something distant or someone distant, God, but that they would begin to take the time in the mornings and the evenings if they're not already. And God, begin to talk to you, even if it's about the weather, the simple things, God, about our kids, about life, about work. Father, let us just start there, God, and get to know each other once again, God. Father, help us, teach us, God, to return to you, God, so that you might return to us, O oh Lord. And not just for the sake of us and our own life and our own kids and spouses and friends, but Father, for the sake of this city and the next one in the world. Lord, it's not about being different or doing our own thing, God. It's simply about being next to you and walking with you in the cool of the garden. Father, we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need any prayer or anything like that this morning, I'll be up front here just for a little bit and uh, be happy to pray with you. I love you and you are dismissed.